Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And we'll begin our reading in verse 13. 13 Romans. And we'll read to the end of the chapter of Romans 9. Under the heading of three questions about election. Three questions about election. from Romans 9 beginning in verse 13. The Apostle Paul begins, verse 13, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? For what is molded, can, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of His mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed He says in Hosea, those who are not My people I have called My people, and her who is not beloved I have called beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea and only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah has predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in the reaching the land, in the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Here ends the reading of God's Word this morning. May we receive it with a believing heart. A blessed congregation, one of the doctrines reclaimed in the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of predestination and election. 
Martin Luther wrote more about the doctrine of predestination than any of the other reformers. If you speak about the doctrine of predestination today, normally it's under the name of John Calvin. You're a Calvinist. This is one of the great Reformation doctrines. And it was Charles Spurgeon who said, I believe, or who said, and I quote, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would have never chosen him. He goes on to say, and I'm sure he chose me before I was born because he never would have chosen me afterward. Election. That's what we want to consider today. Now, we're all familiar with the idea of elections. When we vote in a civil election, we have to make a choice of one political candidate over the other. We elect them. On the schoolyard, when you have to pick a team for soccer, and remember, they split up the boys and girls, and you have to pick one from the other side. You're making a choice. You're electing one person over the other, and hopefully you're not elected last. The Bible says that God also elects. That God also makes a choice. And He makes a choice to choose some to have everlasting life. And He leaves others in their sin and in their misery. As a young man, I was raised in the Free Methodist Church of Canada. And I went to an Arminian Bible school. And when I was introduced to the doctrine of predestination, my first reaction was, I don't like it. Predestination? Well, that's not fair if God chooses some over others. And if God has already predestined everyone before they were even born, well, we don't even have a chance to resist His will or to embrace it. And here's the big question. If God is sovereign in predestination, why evangelize? Why go to the ends of the earth? Why share the Gospel with your friends and your family? What if they're not elect? were the questions I had. But the more and more the Word of God took hold of my heart, I began to see that election was the very thing that revealed the great depths of God's mercy. See, if we're going to celebrate today that Reformation principle that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, we need to recognize this morning that even the decision is not my glory. That even the choosing of Christ does not belong to my strength, but that all of salvation from beginning to end rests in God's sovereign hands. What Paul sets forth in Romans 9 when he considers the doctrine of election 
is that the only thing you and me bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. But Paul is a good teacher, and he knows that his students have questions. And so we're going to look at three questions from Romans 9 about the doctrine of election. Question one, is God fair? Question two, why does God blame me? And question three, who can be saved? Is God fair? Why does He blame me? And who can be saved? But what we'll see is that the doctrine of sovereign election actually shows that God is merciful and that He is just. The first question is, is God fair? We need to read verse 13 and read it very carefully. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. The doctrine of election can simply be summarized as this. That from before all eternity, God chose, before we were born, some members of the human race and left the other members to perish. God made a choice. He chose some individuals to be saved and to have everlasting blessedness. And the others He passed over to follow the consequences of their sins to hell. I want to ask you the question this morning, how does that make you feel? Do you like it? Or do you feel like the Apostle Paul That's not fair. But look at what Paul says in verse 13. We can't get around this, folks. We can't say, I don't like this doctrine and just ignore it. He says, it is written. It's in the Bible. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. That's from Malachi 1 the prophet proclaims this. And the more and more you look, you begin to see election on every page. You see election in Ephesians 1 when Paul says, before the foundations of the world, God made a choice. You see election in John 6, verse 44. You see election in 2 Timothy 2. It's all over the place. God is sovereign. It is written, Jacob, I have loved. Meaning I have chosen him. Jacob and Isaac And you and me are chosen not because we are good or bad, but because of God's purpose of election and His call. You were loved. But Esau, verse 13 says, was not chosen. Ishmael was not loved. They were hated. How does that make you feel? Well, many of us may be saying, that's not fair. And that's exactly the question Paul anticipates in verse 14. Is there any injustice on God's part? When we first encounter the doctrine of election, it doesn't seem just for God to choose some to receive His mercy while others receive His benefits. That's not fair. But look at Paul's response. Certainly not. 
God is certainly not unjust because God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. See, the Belgic Confession in Article 16 I think starts at the right point when considering the doctrine of election. Because it begins with the fall. In Article 16 of the Belgic Confession it says, we believe that all Adam's descendants having thus fallen into, into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man. That's the starting point. Is that all of us have sinned. Even as Paul is talking about, if you flip in Romans 9, to the example of the potter, it's from the same fallen lump that God chooses one over the other. You see, every one, single one of us in this room has sinned against God. Every single one of us has gone our own way. Every single one of us has not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourselves. The question should not be, why doesn't God save everyone? The question should be, why does God save anyone? See, if God were truly fair, if God gave to everyone what they deserved, then He would save no one. Because all people are guilty before God and no one deserves salvation. So in that little phrase, Jacob I have loved, is actually the Gospel message. That before the world began, God looked at the fallen mass of humanity. He saw every single person who rejected Him. And all He saw in them was wickedness and sin and idolatry. And that they were haters of God and haters of the truth. And it says, He loved Jacob even in his sin. And He loved Isaac even in his sin. And He loved the church even in His sin. He loved you even in your sin. And He sovereignly decides to give some mercy. Mercy. And He leaves others and they get justice. Not injustice, because mercy is owed to no one. They receive justice. Allow me to illustrate this. Let's say a rich person in Michigan, Michigan decides they want to help out some inner city kids, maybe in Grand Rapids or Detroit, and they say, out of the literal thousands of kids, I'm going to choose 20 to give a full ride to college. I'll totally cover all their expenses, the tuition, the housing, the food, gives them everything they need, completely covering their college tuition. And since this person helps some kids, does this mean that he's being unfair to the rest? No. This person wouldn't have to help any of these kids. See, when it comes to mercy, 
when it comes to generosity, when it comes to grace, there is no such thing as being unfair. Because no one is owed mercy. That's mercy by its definition. Meaning, not punishing someone who is worthy of punishment. That's mercy. Therefore, if God elects Jacob to salvation, even though he deserves damnation, it's mercy. And if he leaves Esau to receive the just punishment he deserves, it's justice. Paul appeals to two Old Testament examples to prove it. Moses and Pharaoh. In verse 15, Paul is quoting Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. Again, this is a quotation from Exodus 33. And at this point in the book of Exodus, remember that God has saved them from Egypt. He split the Red Sea. And He has provided for Israel every step of the way in the wilderness. They're hungry. He gives them manna. They want meat. He gives them quail. It even says in the book of Exodus that the shoes they wore out of Egypt didn't wear out on their feet. He provided everything. But at this point, in Exodus 33, Moses has gone up the mountain. He's been up there for 40 days. And the people say, what of this man, Moses? And Aaron presents them a golden calf. And they begin to worship it. And Moses comes down and he smashes the Ten Commandments and he goes back up the mountain and God says, go without me. I'm not willing to go with you to Canaan. And what he's really saying is go get destroyed in the promised land. They'd have no chance in Canaan without the Lord. And Moses prays his famous prayer, show me thy glory. And God's response in Exodus 33 verse 19, he goes to Moses and he says, I am the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What God is proclaiming to Moses is that he is absolutely free. He can do what he wants. He is the sovereign. He is revealing himself to Moses. He is compelled and bound by nothing. And He is free to give mercy to everyone if He wants. He is free to give mercy to some. And He is free to give mercy to none. He doesn't owe Moses mercy. He doesn't owe Israel mercy. And if He gives them mercy, it is purely of His good pleasure. It's not injustice. But it's the same with Pharaoh. That if God wants to raise Pharaoh up and harden his heart and leave him in his sin, he does no injustice. Isaac, Jacob, and Moses and Israel receive mercy. While Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh receive their just punishment. There's no 
and justice in God. What this means, congregation, a word of application is that those who receive God's mercy should worship Him all the more. It depends not on human will or exertion, but God, uh, but God who has mercy. Your salvation doesn't depend on what you do or what you did not do. Your salvation doesn't depend on your family or your works or, your mer- or of your goodness. It's all of His mercy. We are guests in the house of God because He has elected and He has called and He has orchestrated all things from beginning to end. Now many of you might be saying, Pastor, you need to slow down. You just brushed over the fact that it says, Paul says, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How can he blame Pharaoh if he is the one who made his heart hard? If God has already elected Jacob to salvation and he's left Esau in his sin sin and misery, did Esau even have a chance? Think about it this morning. If he fell on his knees and he begged God for forgiveness, if Pharaoh cried out to Moses and cried out to Yahweh and said, forgive me, would God have said, no, you're not elect. You may not come. What does it mean? God hardens, verse 18, whomever He wills. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4 this morning where we see the story of Moses leading the people of God out of Egypt. And how God, through Moses, sent plague after plague. To Pharaoh, he revealed his glory. To Pharaoh, he revealed his sovereignty. To Pharaoh, he revealed his redemption. And in Exodus 4, verse 21, it says, I will harden his heart so that he will not let his people go. Let the people go. And God says this six more times in Exodus 4 to 14. He says it again in Exodus 7, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 10, verse 1, verse 20, verse 27. Six times God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. How does He do this? And does this mean our God delights in evil? Is He excited that Pharaoh is rejecting Him? And says no to His revelation and no to His power and no to His glory and His sovereignty. The answer is no. God hates evil. God wills that all people come to repentance. If you flip to chapter Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, it reveals that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Six times in this story, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then six times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In 
chapter 8, verse 15, verse 19, verse 32, chapter 9, verse 12, verse 17, verse 34. As Martin Luther said, there's enough evil in Pharaoh's heart for him to resist God at every turn. All God has to do is let him. As R.C. Sproul says, how does God harden Pharaoh's heart? He doesn't produce new evil. He simply removes his hand of grace. He lets out the line. He gives him a longer leash. He lets him pursue the evil of his own heart. God doesn't produce evil. He's the God of all goodness, of light and joy and hope. He's the God of salvation who desires that all people would come in. But according to His sovereign purposes and His purpose of election, He can remove His hand of grace for people to pursue their own sin. I want to introduce to you this morning a new word It's a very important theological word which we all need to know. And it's the word reprobation. Reprobation. George Whitfield said, you should never preach the doctrine of reprobation without tears in your eyes. Now, I'm not promising I'm going to cry. But this is holy ground. See, if election is God's choice, that's what election means. Reprobation is God's exclusion of someone. Reprobation is choice. Excuse me, election is choice, and reprobation is exclusion. And the way God reprobates Pharaoh, the way He excludes Pharaoh from Himself and from heaven, And from salvation is by letting Pharaoh do what he wants. He lets Pharaoh pursue his sinful desires. Paul has actually alluded to this, if you have your Bible open to Romans, all the way in chapter 1, when Paul is talking about the sinfulness of this world, and we ask the question, why is the world so sinful? Paul says in Romans 1.25, he gave them over. Three times in Romans 1, Paul says, he gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. So when God hardens someone's heart, He's not creating the hardness, but He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. And so the second objection, why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? The protest here is that God keeps the non-elect away. And therefore, He had no chance. But this, again, my friend Harry Zeckfeld says, as if we're throwing our sin back in God's face. It's your fault, God. You didn't elect me. You didn't save me. I'm not the one to blame for my sin. You are. But when we look at the examples that Paul gives in Romans 9, the example of Ishmael, 
Esau and Pharaoh and the Jews? Did God do any injustice against them? In fact, God gave them every opportunity to respond to His word, but they rejected Him. Look at Ishmael. How many blessings did he receive from God? This is the first covenant child. One of the first people to receive the sacrament of circumcision. He received the promise just as much as Isaac did. I will be your God. How Ishmael must have sat with Father Abraham and listened to the stories about faithfully following God and the Bible tells us from Ishmael's own heart. He rejected God. And so it is with Esau. How many blessings he received. Born to faithful Isaac. Circumcised on the eighth day. Raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But Hebrews 12 tells us he was godless from his heart. Especially Pharaoh. Raised among the Hebrews. The covenant people of God in Egypt. And when Egypt seemed powerful, he practices infanticide. and kills all the boys. Ten times Moses came to him. Ten times God showed His glory. Ten times God showed His power. Ten times the Gospel was proclaimed. Let my people go! God showed him His wonder, His name, His glory, His sovereignty, And in Exodus 9, you know why God rejected him? Exodus 9, verse 13 says, You, Pharaoh, set yourself against me. Think of the Jews. How many blessings they had. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises of God. The Christ... And what does Jesus say as He's about to go into Jerusalem to be crucified for the sins of His church? He stands and weeps over the city. And He says, oh, how I would have loved to gather you under My arms, under the wings like a hen with her chicks. But you were not willing. It was Israel. It was Ishmael. It was Esau. It was Pharaoh who rejected him. See, R.C. Sproul puts it this way, the Calvinist view of predestination teaches that God actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to make absolutely sure they are saved. The rest are invited to Christ. They're given the opportunity They can be saved if they want to. The opportunity to be saved if they want to. But left to themselves, no one has chosen Christ. We could put it this way. God is the author of salvation. But we are the authors of our own damnation. And so the freedom of the sovereign is always greater than the freedom of His subjects. Always. Parents, you know this. Why do your kids have to listen to you? Because it's my house. I know you've pulled that one. Why do you have to listen to your boss? 
It's His company. And so does God have every right to do what He wills with His creation. Just like a potter has every right from the same lump of clay to make one vessel into a beautiful vase that He puts in His house and another vessel for a lower purpose. Holding umbrellas at the door. God has every right to make Ishmael and Esau and Pharaoh to be vessels of his wrath to show his justice. In them he shows that he hates sin. In them he shows that all wrongdoings will be punished. In them he shows that he is just. And it is, it is His divine right to do so. And the mystery of election is that He does it all, verse 23, to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand. This is too profound for me. I don't know the depths of this. Paul is saying that if God condemned everyone, we wouldn't know His glory. And if God saved everyone, we wouldn't know His glory. But that somehow, some way, according to God's purpose of election, He saved us that we would see and know His glory. That we would see and know His love. We would see and know His mercy. See and know His grace. And that we would worship Him all the more. Because we know what we've been spared. We know what we've been saved from in election. Now as we consider the hard hearts of Ishmael, Esau, and Pharaoh... You know who else's heart was hard in this story? Jacob. He's just as wicked. Swindles his brother. Takes God's name in vain and cheats his father. Lies to him. Grows up and he has these sons and they're they're just reckless. They kill the Shechemites and they throw Benjamin down a well and sell him into slavery. But because of God's love, His choice, the hard heart of Jacob was softened. You know who else's heart was hard? Paul. Formerly Saul. Persecuting the church. A terrorist. But this is one of the wonderful applications of this passage that God can soften even the hardest of hearts. God can take those who seem so destined for hell and turn them around by His divine grace. See, what I want to show you in our third and final point, who can be saved, is that election and reprobation is actually a message of hope. See, the final question that the Apostle Paul gives us, and I'm simply summarizing here, is who can be saved? Paul has taught us that God predestinates, 
The Lamb was slain before the foundations of a world. Ephesians 1, the church chosen in Christ. Verse 4, the reprobate left in their sins. And the reason Paul quotes Hosea and Isaiah is to say that this was always God's plan. God always knew that He would elect some and reprobate others, and nothing can change that. But we need to ask the question this morning. How do we square sovereign election and John 3.16? That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish and have everlasting life. How do these two things go together? Or 2 Peter 3, that God does not wish any would perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the doctrine of election forces us to ask the question, who can be saved? Let's make it more personal. If you cry out to God right now, and you say, I need salvation, I need your son. Will God say no if you are not elect? And if I hate God, and I hate his truth, will he drag me kicking and screaming into heaven? Who can be saved? Something needs to be said here, folks. That all who call upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. Amen? It's a guarantee. You can take it to the bank. Paul says that in Romans 10, that all who call upon the name of the Lord and believe in their hearts that Jesus rose from the dead will be saved. Paul says how you know that you are elect is not if you are physically a descendant of Abraham, but as if you but if you have received the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And you trust him alone for your salvation. Those are the elect. Not by works, not by family. Not even by church. Look what Paul says. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it a righteousness by faith. What is Paul saying here? He is saying that the Gentiles are elect. Some of them. Because they have faith. Faith in what? They have faith in Christ. That's the rock of offense. That's the stone of stumbling. Look at verse 33. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock and offense. And look what Paul says. Whoever believes in Him. It's a person. This is a messianic term referring to Jesus Christ. That you see, the Jews, they thought they could secure favor from God by obedience to the law. They thought that when Christ came, or excuse me, when Christ came, they rejected Him, even though He was the true Israel, the elect of God, the way to the Father. Paul says, 
the way that you know you're elect is if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. The answer to the question, who can be saved, is all who call upon His name. All who look to Him for salvation. Who don't trust in themselves like the Jews did. Who do not try to work up the celestial ladder to get to heaven by their own righteousness. But who simply embrace God's Messiah by faith. I've been around the Reformed Church long enough to know I think where the pressure point is here. Is my faith enough? See, in conclusion today, I want to turn in our forms and prayers, do something different, to the canons of Dort, which really is where the best definition of Calvinism can be found. And there's an article in Canons of Dort 116, which can be found on page 263 in the forms and prayers. Because the more time I spend with my Calvinistic brothers and sisters, the more I run into the question. People ask, am I reprobate? Or am I elect? The canons, knowing that this is what people struggle with, wrote Article 116, the response to the teaching of reprobation. Those who do not yet actively experience within themselves a living faith in Christ or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal for childlike obedience, and a glorifying in God through Jesus Christ, but who nevertheless use the means by which God has promised to work these things in us. Listen to this. Such people ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to count themselves among the reprobate. Rather, they ought to continually di- continue diligently in the use of these means, to fervently desire a time of more abundant grace, and to wait for it in reverence and in reverence and humility. On the other hand, those who seriously desire to turn to God to be pleasing in Him alone and to be delivered from the body of death, but are not yet able to make such progress along the way of godliness and faith as much as they would like, such people ought much less to stand in fear of the teaching concerning reprobation. Since our merciful God has promised that He will not snuff out a smoldering wick and He will not break a bruised reed. What is the canon saying here? That even weak faith is a gift from God. Your Your faith might feel like a smoldering wick sometimes. It might feel like a bruised reed and you feel like if, I'm, if it's up to me, Lord, if I have to hold on to you, it's not going to work. I won't make it. See, the doctrine of election and reprobation is actually a doctrine of hope. Because it is not 
about you holding on to Christ, but our merciful Savior holding on to you. And all of those whom He has chosen, all those whom He has circled in the Lamb's book of life, should be assured of their salvation. That as surely as they trust in Jesus and confess Him before God and before men, He will save. He will save. These doctrines are not meant to fill us with fear, but comfort. Look at the final sentence of Romans 10. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Our faith might be weak, but we rest in the arms, we rest safe in the arms of sovereign love. And we will go through this life and we will stand before God and all of His church, He will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word that You have demonstrated from the beginning to the end that You are both merciful and just. You are fair. You are good. And all who call upon You You have given the gift of faith. Father, allow us not to be discouraged by the doctrine of election, though there are many questions. But allow us to trust in Your sovereign revelation that, Lord, You are good, that You hold us in the palm of Your hands, and though hell and Satan rage against us, we will never be moved. What a comfort this is also for our friends and family who do not know the Lord, that it's not on us, but that, Lord, You will save Your people. We trust them into Your care. Bless us this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.